So I'd like to begin uh, with one first big question. During the course of work, during the course of work, what are you in denial of? Now, I word it that way because as we work, and remember, work is everywhere. It could be at home, it could be at the office, it could be a construction site, it could be at school. Whatever your work is, it gets stressful. And when it gets stressful, then it precipitates certain responses, certain emotions, maybe our tempers flare. It draws out certain things from within us. And one of those things can be denial. As stress comes into our lives during the course of work, um, there might be a certain issue in our hearts, but we just choose to ignore it and just uh, pummel through, just continue to bulldoze through and get on with the task, get on with the day. And so generally speaking, perhaps these uh, four types of denials, you might be able to identify with one or more. Perhaps you're in denial of a certain victim mentality. You're really good at blaming anything and everyone else for what's going wrong instead of perhaps looking at yourself and you feel that you're always the victim. Perhaps you're working hard and as you're going about work and you have even some success uh, or, or maybe some failures, but there's this gnawing emptiness and you just choose to shove it under the rug. You just choose to deny that and you just keep bulldozing ahead and you look for that next whatever it is that, that numbs that emptiness for you. Perhaps some of us, and this is one that I would probably um, just confess to, to most readily, is just at the core, there's just a selfishness. And, and we, but we deny that. When we go to work, the way we see people, use people, maybe even our own homes, that, that we're basically selfish and we're just self-interested in thinking about our own comfort and so forth. And maybe perhaps you're in denial of that. Or perhaps you're in denial of a certain neediness. And, and you just won't admit that there are certain issues in your heart and you're just always looking for that affirmation from whomever it may be, your supervisor, your coworker, your spouse, your children. Uh, maybe there are hurts in your heart and you really are at the surface a needy person, but you're just in denial of that. Now, I'm going to take a hard left turn here. And um, the, the flow to this thought is a bit abrupt but I want to offer you sort of one big thought, one big prayer, if you will. And these days, I've been trying to word the big thought of each sermon just as a simple prayer that hopefully you remember or you jot down and, and you can repeat to yourself um, throughout the day uh, and through the week. But here's the big thought, the simple prayer. Lord, help me to delight myself in you. Help me to delight myself in you. We're going to see today that Solomon, he calls out humanity. He calls out all the people who would read Ecclesiastes, all the people that were assembled and listening to him at the end of his life. He calls them out on certain denials. And truly, truly, what I believe the message of Ecclesiastes points to in the biggest picture is that Ecclesiastes is calling you and I to delight ourselves in the Lord as, as the solution to all our denials. If you struggle with a victim mentality, a blame-shifting orientation, if you have that emptiness, if you have that selfishness or neediness, delighting yourself in the Lord is the answer. And so this is a simple prayer that we would be the better for to learn to pray and just have a rhythm in our thoughts towards God. So I want to ask three more questions today to help us unpack this and, and to draw this out from Ecclesiastes 6. 
First, what denials does Solomon call us out on? Uh, Next, what reality did Solomon need to accept? Because a solution to denials is to accept a certain reality and then live in that reality. And then finally, how do I take steps toward delighting in God at work? Because our faith in Christ, it needs to be practical. It needs to work itself out in our everyday real circumstances. So let's move on to the next question. What denials does Solomon call us out on? So let's dive into the text. And picking up in verse 1, I believe that Solomon calls out to us, you and I, we deny God as our enjoyment. Picking up in verse 1, there is an evil. And Solomon has been observing many evils that he sees in his nation, in his own life, in the world. And let's pause there. There is an evil. Now, I don't blame any of us, but probably naturally most of us, we don't consider ourselves evil. And when we see that word, we might even write it off. Okay, this isn't for me. That's too drastic. I'm not an evil person. Our society has definitely lowered a standard of evil. They've basically, as a Canadian citizen living in Toronto, I don't generally consider myself evil as long as I'm out of prison. As long as I'm not incarcerated and charged with something and find myself behind bars, and I think the average citizen in Toronto would consider themselves not evil, just generally a good person as long as they can obey the laws of the land and they don't find themselves in prison. Now, therefore, I'm saying that society has basically lowered a definition of evil to that state. And of course, it's good to stay out of prison. It's good to not be evil that way. And that's a good definition. But God and Scripture, they elevate, He elevates the definition of evil to infinitely higher, that really no one can call themselves not evil. Now, to explain it a bit more, even this word evil, where do we first see it? And we go right back to creation, right back to before sin entered the world and ruined and diseased this existence. And before sin, God gives this command to Adam and Eve, and the Lord commanded, it's in the blue bubble there on the screen, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Same word, same idea, same category. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What God is explaining here is this one command to Adam and Eve and saying, just follow this command, but if you don't, then you will bear the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And evil here basically means, in in maybe perhaps a bit more inoculated terms, the effects of the fall, the effects of sin. None of us would deny that we are broken inside. None of us would deny that we are selfish at certain points, that we have morally speaking, not been perfect. And so if evil is understood as simply as the effects of the fall, and every time you see there is an evil in Ecclesiastes, or as you read scripture, if you just replace that with the synonym, the effects of the fall, the brokenness in us and around us that I have seen under the sun, then all of a sudden we're not dismissed from this category as well. This is relevant to you and me. And so Solomon is saying, there is an effect of the fall that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives. God gives. God gives wealth, possessions, and honors that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Even if you haven't placed 
your faith in God, in Christ, even if you've rejected him and you consider yourself atheist, and all the blessings that you have in your life are from God. We don't decide our birthplace. We don't decide what century we're born in, what, into what family, into just all our starting point. That 95% of our lives and what we have really can come back to that it was given to us. And so God gives these things. And yet, jumping to the next blue highlighted phrase here, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. And so what Solomon is saying here is that we are denying that all things are from God and even our power to enjoy is from God. Now, what's interesting is this phrase, power to enjoy. Power means dominion or to be master of. And what God meant from the beginning of creation was that his people, we, you and I, would be masters and have, in the best sense, a healthy, good stewardship to have dominion over this earth, to cultivate it, to multiply it. Case in point, we see that even animals, animals can attack humans and creation now masters us. We at times don't have dominion over even animals and we can be prey to, to large animals like lions and so forth. And this word here to enjoy, it, in other contexts, it also means to eat, to consume. Sin, what it has done is reverse the order. Creation masters us. We get consumed by our longing for material things and success and ambition and all those things out there. Even food can control us and it consumes us. It has power over us. And why? Because our relationship with God has been severed. And even enjoyment, proper enjoyment, proper order where we master what's been given to us and it serves God and serves us now we end up serving these things. And so what Solomon is saying, basically, is we deny God as our enjoyment. Well, Solomon points out another denial. We deny the absurdity of life and death, meaning we're happy to just go about our lives being happy moment by moment. If we can just string along, just create a, a pearl necklace of, of individual pearls of happiness, even if that pearl is fleeting, even if that happiness is fleeting, as long as we can string together experiences happiness, then we're fine. Now Solomon, not to minimize any family here that has experienced a stillborn birth, but Solomon here, he goes to this intense analogy, this very intense and, and even gruesome analogy, this very broke, a grievous analogy uh, of, of a stillborn child. And so he compares it, picking up in verse 3, just reading, if a man fathers a hundred children, and Scripture only records uh, actually a few children of Solomon, but who knows how many children weren't recorded. He had a thousand wives or 700 wives, 300 concubines. Perhaps he's speaking of himself here. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And now this curious phrase, and he also has no burial. I think he's saying in, in other terms and in different words, what if, just imagine with me, there's this man who can have everything that this world has to offer, and he's even immortal living on this earth, just under the sun, in time, living forever. 
The closest comparison that comes to me in literature is Bram Stoker's Dracula, and where he has this uh, limited immortality, of course, in the, the novel, in that world that Bram Stoker created. He can be killed, but, but he can avoid being killed and live on forever, ever. And, and Bram Stoker's Dracula is, is seen as this lonely man and just driven by his lust for blood and, and living through the centuries. And, and this is a similar description. Imagine this man having everything, and he can even live on physically forever, but then he, now we come to this intense analogy, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered, and he continues to elaborate. Moreover, this stillborn child has not seen the sun, meaning living life on this earth and experiencing all the brokenness, or known anything, yet Here's the advantage of that stillborn child. It finds rest. It finds rest. Even though it didn't taste riches on this earth, didn't taste success and, and people loving him and adulation, he, that stillborn child or she, finds rest rather than this man who has everything but his soul is not satisfied. And even if he physically lived on forever, even though... This man with everything should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the same place, to the one place, meaning they face death. See, there's the absurdity. There's the absurdity that some of us, we can work so hard. We can strive so with our blood, sweat, and tears for everything, but really where it all ends up is death. It's almost absurd. Like, what's the whole point of it? To give another analogy, my boy these days, he's really discovered a, a new love in his life, soccer. And uh, his current league, he, he joined a house league, and this is his, his uniform in house league, the blue and white uniform. And uh, he missed a, a tryout for a rep team, if you don't know how sports work. Basically, there's house league, which is sort of the lowest level, and then there's rep and select, and just... The, 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 the skill level gets higher and higher, and, and he got noticed by the rep team coach, and they wear a black uniform. This is not it. And he got invited to train with the rep team, even though he's not part of the rep team. And what I noticed psychologically happening in Christopher is he's so much, he knows he's in house league, but he so much wants to identify as being part of the rep team. And so he went through his clothes, and, and he found the closest thing to the rep team, which this is a jersey given by a, a, a family friend. And now he even makes a mistake, mistake at times when he's going to his house league game, he puts this on instead because he so much wants to identify with the rep team and he's so proud to wear this when he's going to practice with the rep team, even though he's not a part of the rep team. Now I try to think of simple ways to summarize the gospel and the Christian faith um, just to be ready for any conversations with my non-believing friends. And, and one way I've summarized it to a friend is, basically, if, if you live apart from Christ, you are playing house league. You might be the best in house league, but you'll realize at the end of life, the end of the season, so to speak, the end of life, that the team that actually mattered to be on, you will come to full realization after death that the team to be on was the rep team. This is the team you wanted to play for. It didn't matter how great and how much of a star you were in this league. There is one eternal league at the end, which is the kingdom of God in Christ. 
And this is the team that you want to be on. And, and, and if you come to that shocking surprise, then you realize, what was the whole point of this? This was absurd. Why put all my energy and time into this? Solomon, he also calls us out on a third denial. We deny, therefore, the physical's ability to permanently satisfy. By physical, we mean everything in time, everything on this earth that we concretely touch and taste and smell and consume and feel and see and hear. We deny the physical's inability, inability, not ability, inability to permanently satisfy. Yes, they might temporarily satisfy. The, the physical, there's that joke, you know, money can't buy you happiness, but it can sure buy you a nice car, right? And there's truth to that. I'll admit that, that it can perhaps give you temporary happiness, but permanent satisfaction is always out of reach. And so Solomon says, very matter-of-factly, all the toil of man is for his mouth, the physical, concrete things to consume, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And that word appetite there, it is the exact same word for soul that we read earlier, nefesh in the Hebrew. And so this is a spiritual thing. What, what Solomon is saying, everything physically that we work for, that we try to own and have under our name and to enjoy, it doesn't satisfy the soul. So what reality then? What reality did Solomon need to accept? That, that's the antidote to denial. You have to accept a certain reality and then live in that reality. What reality did Solomon need to accept? And going back to verse 7, when he says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his soul, his appetite, or another uh, synonym for appetite and soul, a part of the soul is our affections, our, our desires, our emotional attachments. What we need to, the reality we need to accept is that the wandering of my affections is a symptom. The wandering of my affections is a symptom. I am pretty sure I would put money on it that all of us here have experienced an emptiness. That all of us here, no matter what stretch of happiness we have, that it's fleeting. And then we're longing for more again. Just as we pay attention to symptoms of a cold in the past two weeks, I had to finally pay attention that I have a runny nose, I have a temperature. I have to just admit, I think I'm, I have the flu or cold or some bug and now begin to take appropriate steps and actions to respond to that and, and to fight against it. Similarly, the wandering of my affections is a symptom to something greater, and that's what Solomon is getting at here. Next, we need to accept the reality that my affections are looking for something specific. That's why Solomon says in this enigmatic way, because he was a writer of Proverbs, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. That's confusing at first on the surface. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is he wants to get to a point where what he has in front of him, the world that he has in front of him, all the pleasures, possessions, power, and people that he has in front of him as he sees it, he has something concrete that actually satisfies his soul instead of his appetite, his affections wandering. But he says, this is a vanity. I can't find this. That is what he's, that's what he's longing for. I love how one commentator summarizes the same thought, the specific point that I'm trying to make. So I'll just read this 
commentary to you. Everyone knows that, some, that things in this world are seriously out of whack. No one claims that his or her own life is as it should be, let alone the whole world. There is something first wrong within us. Nothing ever seems to make us happy or fulfilled except in the most fleeting way. There is also wrong among us. The world is filled with poverty, war, suffering, and injustice. Something seems to have knocked the whole world off balance. But what is it? Who deserves the blame? And what is the solution? Solomon, the, the reality that he had to accept was that he was looking. And, and kudos to him. He wanted something concrete to satisfy him. So do I. And I, doubt, I don't doubt that you do as well. And if he would only have listened to his father, David, his father David, who penned many beautiful psalms, and David had more of the truth, he had more of a clear foresight than Solomon. If only he had just even this one psalm that his father David had written, if Solomon would reflect on this one verse from Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I will hope to see concretely with my eyes, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze, to see, to see concretely, to behold tangibly upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. If David was still around at the end of Solomon's life, he would have said to his son, Son, the answer is to look to the Lord and the Lord's great plan. He, he has his Christ coming. He has his Messiah coming. And he is beautiful. He is beautiful beyond anything that you have accrued in this life. That's the power of beauty. You talk to any 21st century marketer or someone in advertising, and overall, the philosophy of advertising has shifted from where in the past, advertising was trying to display the functional prowess of a product, that it will functionally perform well and so forth. The overwhelming narrative, in the Western world at least, of advertising is a narrative that this product will make you happy. They don't focus on the functional quality of it, but more that this product will, will give you, there's a certain beauty to it. And if you have this in your life, it'll make the story of your life happier and more beautiful. See, when there's something beautiful in front of us, it has the power of lifting us up out of our circumstances and, and, and hoping, being inspired that my life could be better. That's the power of beauty. And what David is saying, what he would have said to his son, there is an ultimate supreme beauty and it is your Lord. And he is tangible. He is concrete. He will come one day in human flesh. He will be historical. He will be as concrete as the history of wars that we read, that the history of, of people and biographies. He will, will walk this earth. That's what you are longing to see with your own eyes. And so the reality that we need to accept to speak to our denials is that Jesus Christ is the undisputed affection. The undisputed affection, just like in, in, a, in a combat, in, in whether a boxing match or MMA, and, and I love how the announcers say, and now entering the ring, the undisputed champion of the world. Similarly, Jesus, undisputed affection. My kids love to play truth dare with their parents. It's the way they're trying to get 
our, our own dirt out of us, I guess. So I always say dare. Uh, and, 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 and so I dare you right now. Let's play truth there. I dare you. I dare you. Whether you are a believer or not, I dare you to meditate on Christ. Take verses from Scripture and meditate on them. Think upon them. The goodness of what God has done. Even if you don't believe it right now, that you just... I dare you to think about it, to read about it, to meditate upon it for 40 days. Why 40 days? Because even secular psychologists say that 40 days is a, is a kind of a magic number to develop a new habit. And also, we won't get into it today, but even Scripture, 40 days is powerful, that God has ordained that number 40 for some reason. And, and I dare you to at least begin to think about Christ as your undisputed affection, and the message that he presents to the world, to history, of God's love for people in him. And that's why Solomon says here, whatever has come to be has already been named, meaning God is sovereign. He has a master plan that he's working out, a plan of redemption in history, and it is known what man is. Our place is already defined, and here it is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he Solomon was king of kings on this earth. He was one of the mightiest kings during his time. And so there's only one that Solomon is thinking of that he cannot dispute with him that is stronger than he, and that is God. That is God. And if only Solomon knew that God is most beautifully represented to man through Christ, and Christ is the one that he cannot dispute with that is stronger than he. And so through another servant of God, Many years later, through Isaiah the prophet, in a similar vein, we read these words, come now, this is the Lord speaking, let us reason together, let us settle out of court. We can settle this outside of court. You can avoid judgment if we reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, though they, they shall be white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall be, become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Maybe Isaiah had read Ecclesiastes and Solomon's longing to just eat and drink and be merry. And if we would just reason with God together, accept his, his deal, that his son will take our place and we'll be cleansed as white as snow. This is Isaiah's, one of Isaiah's versions of the gospel here. If we would just reason with the Lord and Christ would become our undisputed affection. So how do I take steps toward delighting in God at every fork in the road? And I, I chose the, those, that wording on purpose, at every fork in the road, because we go through the day and we hit many forks in the road. How am I going to respond to this coworker? How am I going to react to my annoying child right now? I love him or her, but he is annoying me right now. How am I going to, uh, as my temper is, is right on the edge and my fuse is about to burn out, how am I going to respond? Or I have an ethical decision before me. How will I delight myself in God at that point and choose the right prong in this fork in the road? I love what Solomon says then here. Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man at every fork in the road? Who knows which path I'm supposed to take while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? meaning there's some light shining on our lives and it's casting a shadow and really there are two lights. There's either 
the light of the literal sun that Solomon has been referring to, life under the sun, this temporary life. And even as we go about our days, the literal sun casting a shadow upon our lives, and it represents just this temporary life. Your life will end in death, and there will be no meaning if you can't find a gospel, a good news outside that is spoken into this world from outside this world. Or there's another light, and we get the clue. Solomon is longing when he asks for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. And so I share again one of my favorite analogies. I share this, I use this picture at least two or three times a year. And this is what the picture you see here is shadow junk art. And these two brilliant artists, I forget their surnames, but they meticulously arranged people's garbage so that when it's finally arranged and they cast a light, it casts from this junk this brokenness, this garbage, this beautiful silhouette, casting even, you could say, a beautiful story. And here of two lovers just enjoying each other's company and leaning on each other's back. The light of Christ, the light of Christ can create real-life shadow junk art, so to speak. I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes this idea of Christ's light and the beauty it brings into our life. In his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, in chapter 4, he writes, in their case, the God of this world, those who are just living under the literal sun and just living for this life, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what Solomon wanted to see, to see with his own eyes the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, not just to become more successful, more confident, more more whatever it may be that this world says, but Jesus Christ as Lord, our undisputed affection with ourselves as your servants, a.k.a. here is also embedded here a theology of work, a.k.a. as your workers for Jesus, that all of a sudden even our work takes on a new radical redeemed meaning for eternal God's glory and our good as your servants, your workers for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let's get practical. How do I delight in God when I'm stressed or angry? Delight in God by remembering God is good and in control. It's a simple, basic Christian thought, but it is It is pillar. It is foundational. What that means, in other words, cast all your cares onto him. When you're stressed, when you're angry, what I try to do, and it helps me, is I just pause. If it means retreating, if need be, retreating in your own mind, retreating, maybe at work you just need to step to the restroom. Just find your space and spiritually breathe. Pray. Exhale all your your, your cares, your anxieties, your stress, your anger. Exhale all that to God. Articulate it to him. And then inhale his promises, his goodness. Ask for perspective. Ask for discernment of what is really bothering you. Because usually stress and anger is just a symptom again. And there's actually something deeper going on that. And let, let the Spirit minister to you at that deeper place. How do I delight in God when I'm dealing with a difficult coworker or a situation? 
Stay close to Jesus, his cross, and empty tomb, meaning his resurrection, to nurture humility and confidence. Whenever you're dealing with a difficult person or a difficult situation, that's what you need. And the, where the greatest example of that and the source of that is Christ himself. On the cross, he displayed the utmost humility. King of all kings of the universe coming down and being found human, poor, and dying for our sins when we didn't deserve it, even though he was sinless. That's a humility. And in a sense, God was listening to humanity, saying, I see your desperation, your condition. I'm, I'm going to meet you where you're at. But also, as you dwell on Christ's resurrection, you develop a confidence, a hope. And you need that because when you are dealing with a difficult situation or person, you need the humility of listening and not just attacking them and trying to bulldoze over them. Where are you going to draw upon that as you dwell on Christ and his humility towards you? But you also need a confidence. You're meant to not be a doormat, but to hold your ground in the sense of speaking your truth and, and living out your value. And so as you stay close to Christ and you nurture his humility and confidence even within yourself, ask for wiser, more gracious listening skills, ask for wiser, clear communication skills, seek to live out your Christian values. One quick story that I came upon and just really impressed me is one man uh, working in the New York financial district. He's a believer, and he was at an investment banking firm, and this opportunity came up to invest in this company, but it was known that this company, though not illegal, it was a bit shady the way they were doing things, just their ethics and so forth, questionable, but not illegal, and his company, the rest of his partners, wanted to invest. He had the final say, but he was in tension well, I have to operate this company and make decisions for the good of the shareholders, the investors, and so forth, and, and, and the board, and so forth. But this kind of goes against my own conscience. And long story short, as he wrestled in prayer and, and, and nurtured humility and confidence and seeking to live out his Christian values, he made quite the statement. He said, okay, we will invest in this company, but as a statement, I will not receive any of the bonuses as a result of this investment. And I want you to give what would be my bonuses, and he gave it to a lesser tier in the company. And he spread it out. And of course, that catalyzed conversations. Why, why would you do that? And it led to opportunities for him to share his values and his belief in the gospel and so forth. Next, how do I delight in God when I'm being evaluated or judged or making mistakes? This happens at home, at work. And you delight in God when you stay close and Jesus is your undisputed affection when you stay close to the Father's heart for you in Christ Jesus. I've heard this before, and so I just share with you, and I love this summary of, of our relationship with God. He loves you as you are, but he doesn't leave you as you are. And so if you're being evaluated or corrected or you're making mistakes, then have the humility to learn, to not be destroyed by evaluation or constructive criticism to know that you're secure in God the Father's love for you, and then to take all that in and, and to see how can I grow and to continue to mature. Just one more. How do I delight in God when I'm succeeding? I hope you will succeed. I hope you, you are ambitious and there's fruit to all your labor. But in those moments as well is a very important fork in the road to delight yourself in God and not build a name for yourself. And so remember, 
Remember that God is the giver of all good gifts. Remind yourself of Christ's servant leadership, that all these blessings and resources that you're accruing, as was prayed today, is is to think through, to, to budget, to steward, and to share a portion with the poor or whatever cause God would lead you to, but especially remember the poor, the widows, the orphans. Remind yourself of grateful stewardship and give glory to God both in your heart, if you're complimented, direct glory to God in your heart, or perhaps if the moment is right, to even externally to acknowledge God. And so I end with this beautiful stanza that describes Christ's undisputed beauty and as our undisputed affection. Fair is the sunshine, fair still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry host. But Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all. May he be your undisputed affection. Amen.